You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Independent community media is vital, and we need your support to keep community strong. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03-9419-8377, or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. 3CR, keep Keep community community strong. Plot destruction, sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning, as the war machine keeps turning. Death and hatred to mankind, poisoning. What will the Anarchist World this week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite? Listen to the Anarchist World this week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. This program is coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. If you wonder what anarchism is all about, anarchist society is a voluntary, non-hierarchical society based on the creation of political and social structures which are based on equal decision-making power and equal access to wealth. Why those concepts? Very simply... Uh, very simply, uh, the word anarchos comes from the Greek. It means without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people as we see every day around the world? And that's inequalities in power and wealth. So the struggle, the anarchist struggle, is the struggle against power. It's the struggle against hierarchy. It's the struggle against the concentration of wealth. So if you're involved in any of these struggles, whether you like it or not, I'm afraid I've got some bad news for you, or good news for you, depending on how you look at it. You're an anarchist. Now, I've been fascinated by the reaction to the election of a Labor government in this country. And there is a distinct change of mood in political circles whether there is a distinct change of mood in people who are not politically motivated is a different matter. But there does seem to be a change of relief. And it reminds me of the last two times the Labor governments have been elected, or f- three times, the Hawke government, the Keating government and the uh, Rudd government and the Gillard, the Gillard government. Uh, this sense of relief and this sense of expectation that something is going to happen 
And I was interested in the election of Mr Proudfoot as the leader of the National Party, who claimed that he wished to move the National Party to the sensible centre. And the election of Mr Dutton as the leader of the Liberal Party, who claimed the Liberal Party would become interested or more interested in the forgotten people. So these are important sentiments. The sensible centre and the forgotten people. It's fascinating to see that the current opposition, the Liberal National Party, somehow thinks that it can change its direction and more importantly change how it's viewed among the Australian people by pulling out concepts like the sensible centre. When they have moved away from the sensible centre for decades and they have removed people from their parties who did have a centrist uh, viewpoint. So we expect, they expect they'll be able to change the rhetoric. But will they change their philosophical and ideological basis? They won't. Because the people that have been re-elected are the very people that have dragged the Liberal National Party into the corporate sector, the very people who have promoted and championed privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation and deregulation, concepts which always seem to positively affect minuscule minority, as we've seen with the growth of billionaires, millionaires, corporations in this country over the past four decades. And we've seen these parties move away from the so-called sensible centre, and I'll discuss that soon, and have created the forgotten people that Mr Dutton and the Liberal Party is now currently courting. The very people that they pushed to the side, they ignored, they marginalised, they now think will come running to the Liberal Party. So what's this sensible centre garbage? Now I know we like to think of politics as left, right and centre. And there's this, this, there's this, you know, this, what is it, spectrum, rainbow, from the extreme left to the extreme right. Now, these terms are totally irrelevant in the 21st century. Terms like left, right, centre mean nothing. They're irrelevant. What we need to do is when we look at political movements, whether they're parliamentary-focused or not parliamentary-focused, what we need to do 
is see whether they want to concentrate power and wealth. Whether they're interested in devolving power, sharing power. Whether they're interested in holding wealth in common. Because that's the crux of political, social and cultural struggle. It's not about whether you think you're part of the left or you're part of the right terms which came about during the French Revolution with the more radical elements, uh, the more radical elements um, be, uh, were sitting on the left-hand side of the uh, revolutionary forces and, and those the more, yeah, and those that uh, weren't so radical. Now, look, I've just been given some information. That's why I've lost my, my thing, and I, I was asking people uh, what's happened to Ken Mooney and uh, Kevin Healy has kindly let me know uh, that uh, Ken is now in a nursing home and he's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's which is uh, terrible news really but uh, at least we know what's happened to Ken and as I said before if anybody knows what's happening with John Barraclough I'd be very very grateful if people could leave a message for me on 0439 395 489. Now, these are two long-term activists who've been involved in radical politics in Victoria for a long, long time who now find themselves in a very difficult position health-wise. Now, let's move on. So left and right, centre, what do they mean? They don't mean anything. I mean, you can have authoritarian left-wing figures, as we've seen, with the creation of communist states, you could call North Korea a communist. You could call North Korea a left-wing state. I mean, if you're a left-wing authoritarian and a right-wing authoritarian, what joins you together is that authoritarian aspect of your political, social, cultural, and ideological viewpoints. So it's about decentralising power, devolving power holding wealth in common, sharing wealth. That's the struggle of the 21st century. And to label it as left or right or centre is totally irrelevant. And that's what the last election showed, is that people are not attaching themselves to these labels. And that's why we saw one-third of the population vote for political parties and independents who are neither left or right. So things are moving, things are changing. So we need to change the way that we view the situation. We need to change that way. We need to change the way we look at political movements. You see parties like One Nation, parties like Palmer's Party, you know, what is it called, United National, United Australia Party. I mean, that's how irrelevant they are. I've forgotten who they were. But again, these parties are basically authoritarian. They believe in the centralisation of power. They want to divide society on the basis of race or gender, and the list goes on and on. And then we've got so-called left-wing parties like the Labor Party, 
commonly known in more radical circles as the Alternative Liberal Party, which is now in, in power. So what is the legacy of Labor governments in this country? The first Labor governments were radical governments at the turn of the 20th century. The first Labor government in the world was elected in Australia in 1911. It only lasted for six months. But it was elected. Now, they made extraordinary decisions. Decisions like establishing the Commonwealth Bank to give ordinary people the ability to get finance at a reasonable cost. Decisions like establishing in 1911 the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories. And then we saw, with the election of the Hawke Labor government in the 1980s, we saw this huge push to change the direction of this country and hitch this country's fortunes to the American alliance and to corporate capitalism. The things that Fraser was not able to do after the defeat of the Whitlam-led Labor government, Keating was able and Hawke were able to do. They were able to introduce policies which supported corporatisation, deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, believing that the only way forward for the Australian people was to hitch the country's wagon to this movement which was sweeping the earth. A movement which just had profound ramifications for a significant number of people in this country, the great majority. While 1% continue to own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication, and about 8 to 9% are part of the investment class and use their disposable income to invest and continue to expand their little financial empires, the rest of the population, to a significant degree, is living a hand-to-mouth existence based on debt, based on the accumulation of debt. And all debt is, is paying for money to buy things. The accumulation of debt. We are now the second most indebted country on the planet and have the second highest housing prices on the planet. And we're getting to the situation like they have in Japan where we're going to have intergenerational mortgages with it. When you die, what you leave your kids is your mortgage. I know it sounds funny, but that's the reality. So these policies which have been pursued by the Alternative Liberal Party, masquerading as the Labor Party, their economic policies and their defence policies have basically not only created increasing inequality in this country, they have made Australia the Ukraine of the South Pacific. So now's the time. 
Now is the very time. People say now that the Labor government is on in power, and there's a Labor government in most of the states except New South Wales and I think Tasmania, then we should back off. Now's the time to back off. Look at what's happened in Victoria. And you'll understand that now is not the time to back off. As I've said before, the Whitlam Labor government's radical agenda was pushed not by the Labor Party, but by tens of thousands of Australians who wanted a change in this country's direction through protest, strikes, public meetings, petitions, occupations, civil disobedience, you name it. That's how that radical agenda came into being in the 70s. So now is the time to take up the fight to the ALP, the Australian Labor Party, the Greens and the Teals parliamentary representatives. It's one thing to be socially progressive and resolve issues that should have been resolved decades, if not centuries ago. But it's another thing to challenge the very essence and the very foundations that this country is based on. And this country is based on one principle, private investment for private profit and the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation revolution which has swept across the world and swept across Australia has reinforced this concept. And it's reinforced this concept by removing the public from the discussion and the decision-making process. Now, we were quite surprised when we launched public interest before corporate interests about five years ago. We were exceptionally surprised by the fact that most Australians didn't, didn't seem to have any understanding of what the public was, what the public good was. Because decades of propaganda regarding the benefits, and it is propaganda, the benefits of, I said, deregulation, privatisation, globalisation and corporatisation, and the incorporation of the Australian people through superannuation has created an investor mentality in this country, a private investment for private profit mentality in this country, which has percolated into all sections of Australian society. Look, I knew the game was up. A few years ago when I was sitting in a cafe in Coburg, there were two blokes in you know, high-vis and muddy boots, and they weren't, you know, engineers discussing their superannuation and their investment strategies and whatever. This is what happens when the foundations this country is built on are looked at. The foundations are very simple. The, the initial foundation was based on theft. And then on top of that, we now have a continuing theft, not a theft 
just directed at this country's First Nations people, but a theft directed at the majority of people in this country, where people have basically become nothing more than vessels that struggle on a day-to-day basis to keep their heads above the water. It's no accident that 90% of small businesses fail within five years. It's no accident that when I was walking through Melbourne yesterday, the number of homeless people continues to grow. It's no accident that we have private charities asking Australians to fork out money to send Australian kids to public schools. Well, at the same time, private schools, courtesy of the Australian taxpayer, have some of the best facilities and teachers anywhere in the world. It's no accident that one third of Australians live on less than $500 a week. It's no accident that most people spend between 30 to 40% of their income paying rent or a mortgage. It's no accident that we live in a society where striking is virtually illegal. And the list goes on and on and on. So now is the time. Now is the time, the very time, to take up the struggle to the ALP, the Greens and the Teal representatives in federal parliament and across state governments. Because what we're interested in, this is public interest before corporate which I'm personally interested in, is issues like support for the public health system, all aspects of the public health system. We're seeing the public health system fall apart around the country, not just because of COVID-19. It was falling apart before COVID-19 because of the lack of investment in the public health system. Obviously, when you've got a private charity asking people to sponsor Australian kids to go to Australian school, public schools, you understand there is a failure as far as the education system is concerned. When you've got premiers like Mr Andrews in Victoria who somehow think the privatisation of the public housing sector is a wonderful thing and selling the Melbourne port was a wonderful thing and privatising the titles office was a wonderful thing and privatising most of Vic Roads was a wonderful thing, and now they're talking about privatising the Transport Accident Commission, you begin to understand the alternative Liberal Party, masquerading as the Labor Party, does not have a progressive economic agenda. It may have a progressive agenda as far as gender equality is concerned, as far as human rights are concerned, 
as far as the Uluru Statement from the Heart is concerned. But it doesn't actually have a radical agenda. So what are the things we're interested in? We're interested in things like decentralised community public energy partnerships to break down the centralisation of energy production in this country. And what we are seeing with the rise and rise of green capitalism is the centralisation of energy production and the dependency of each and every one of us on these centralised energy sources. So now is the very time to take up the struggle. Now is it the time to sit in your armchair and watch the new cabinet being sworn in? Now isn't the time to listen to Mr Proudfoot talking about the sensible centre or Mr Dutton talking about the forgotten people because now is the very time where we need to radicalise that agenda which they are pursuing. Because if we don't do that, it will be more of the same. And the Hawke government, the Keating government, the Rudd government, the Gillard government, the Rudd government continued to deliver more of the same as far as the economy as far as living standards, as far as climate emergency is concerned. Think about it. So if you are interested in pursuing these ideas, I'm quite happy to talk to you over the next few days, whether you come to the uh, public housing vigils we hold in Melbourne on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House on midday or every Thursday, whether you're coming to the Marbo celebrations here in on the 3rd of June or wherever, we need to pursue these and we need to actually start planning for the Victorian state election, which will be held in November. Because it's not just about federal politics, it's also about what happens at the state level. Because we're in a federal system, as we've seen with COVID-19, state governments have enormous power. Marbo Day, the 3rd of June, divide and rule. Well, Marbo Day in the Torres Strait Authority area is a public holiday, but not in the rest of Australia. But we will be celebrating here in Melbourne Marbo Day on the 3rd of June, which is this Friday at midday at Federation Square, where there are, where the uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander and Australian flag are hoisted up on the flagpoles on St Kilda Road near the corner of St Kilda Road and uh, was it Flinders Street, just across the road from uh, Flinders Street Station. So we'll be there. So what's so important about Marbo Day? Now, you, we all know that uh, Reconciliation Week is basically bookended by National Sorry Day on the 26th of May. On the 27th of May is the anniversary of the 67 referendum, which gave the federal government responsibility for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, which is... And then we had the 28th of May, which I think was 1995, was the first day that the Torres Strait Islander flag was flown in the Torres Strait. And then we have the Marbo Day on the 3rd of June. Now, this year marks the 30th anniversary of the Marbo Day of the High Court decision, which forever buried 
the ridiculous notion that this land belonged to no one. Terra nullius. This country was settled, colonised, on the legal fiction that people who'd lived here for 60,000 years didn't exist. That's what Terra nullius was. Now, Eddie Marbo was a Torres Strait Islander who'd been expelled from his community in Murr in the eastern Torres Strait because he was considered to be a little bit of a troublemaker. And he ended up in Townsville. Now, Eddie Marbo was working as a gardener at James Cook University. And he was interested in the 80s, the late 70s and 80s, and the discussions which were occurring in the cafeteria as the new urban indigenous radicals began to flex their muscles. And he could not believe that people accepted the concept of terra nullius. And over time, as his knowledge grew, he was able, with the help of Bo, of a free legal uh, service, not legal aid, but pro bono work from legal firms in Queensland and Victoria, with the assistance of two other landowners on the island of Moor in the Torres Strait, Father Rice and I think uh, Passy, Grandfather Passy, they launched a case which wound through the courts for over a decade. Initially in the lower courts in Queensland, then the Supreme Court in Queensland. This was during the Bielke-Peterson era. Not an easy time for Indigenous people when you remember that it was the Bielke-Peterson government which sent in helicopters to Mapoon to burn the traditional people's village and deport them to other parts of Queensland. So the High Court on the 3rd of June 1992 recognised it, what everybody knew, but legally recognised it. And it recognised that First Nations Australians had rights to land in law because of their prior occupation of this land. Unfortunately, Eddie didn't live to see the judgment. He died a few months earlier of lung cancer. So this set in a train of events, and those of you who are old enough to remember, a train of events which led to the Murdoch-based media and the other elements of the mass media and sections of the government guild at ABC carrying on about Indigenous Australians laying claim to people's backyards. That's how ridiculous the conversation went. And successive federal governments went ahead passing legislation to try to extinguish the rights in law which the High Court found in 1992. Now, a lot of people say, well, the Mabo decision was... Well, some people, not a lot. Some people say it wasn't that important. The Mabo decision was pivotal 
because it, it blew out of the water the legal fiction this land was based on. It blew out of the water the concept that the land belonged to no one. It blew out of the water that Indigenous people had ceded their sovereign rights to this land. And what happened afterwards, to a significant degree, was the colonisers' response to this country's First Nations people, having for the first time in over 204 years legal rights to land and water. Legal rights because of prior occupation. Although the Maori decision was limited in terms of people who were not living a traditional lifestyle and who were still not at connection with their lands, it did have significant implications and continues to have significant implications. Because native title is different to freehold title. And what we've seen over the last 20 to 30 years is efforts by governments and sections of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community to convert native title into freehold title. Native title gives you common ownership, common ownership of land, not individual ownership. And, and that's the fundamental difference, common ownership. And we've seen legislation passed through Parliament at the state and federal levels that has attempted to break down that common ownership by pitting traditional owners against traditional owners. And today, as I speak, just in the state of Victoria, there are multiple claims in the federal court against the Victorian government's decision to recognise certain groups as traditional owners. And the reason this is occurring is the more radical groups are being disenfranchised by government at the state and federal level, especially in Victoria, because the more radical groups are not willing to cede their rights. The dilemma is that once the state government or the federal government determines a particular section of a particular group are the traditional owners, everybody else is excluded. And when it comes to councils and their interaction with local councils, the state government determines who the traditional owners are. So there are huge issues as far as title is concerned regarding three-hole title, native title. And the difference is, the fundamental difference is, one, you can actually use that land as collateral to borrow money from the banks. And if you can't pay that loan off, you will lose that land. With native title, you cannot use that land as collateral because of the common ownership. And it's quite interesting to see how, how much effort is being put into actually 
trying to pit group against groups as far as traditional ownership of lands is concerned. It's good for the mining industries because they can form an association with a particular group and say they have acknowledged the traditional owners and come to an agreement with the traditional owners. And it's good, as we saw in Victoria, uh, with the sacred tree struggle, which continues, that you know you pick and choose who the traditional owners are. So this has got nothing to do with the Mabo decision. These are ramifications of the fact that the High Court in 1992 found that Indigenous Australians had rights to land and water in law. So this Friday, if you live in Melbourne, and obviously if you're in the Torres Strait, there'll be many, many activities, and obviously there are many activities around Australia. Find out where uh, there's a Mabo Day uh, gathering or celebration in your part of the world and uh, join it. Mark Mabo Day is an important day in the history of this country's uh, First Nations people. Not just in the history, but the continuing struggle for rights, compensation, treaty, acknowledgement, and the list goes on and on. And it's interesting that the Uluru Statement from the Heart, as far as the voice to parliament is concerned, is they want that voice enshrined in the Australian Constitution. Because their history of ATSIC, which was the body which was set up as a representative body for this country's First Nations people, it was abolished by the government. They didn't like the way it was moving. It abolished it. Constitutional recognition means that it's only the Australian people who can abolish that organisation which gives advice to Parliament regarding First Nations issues. And that's what I've said constantly on this program for decades. There is no point having public ownership of essential services which are not enshrined in the Australian Constitution because these public Institutions but not, do not belong to the Australian public. They belong to the parliament of the day. And for short-term financial gain or ideological reasons, we have seen successive governments at the state and federal level privatise public assets without going back to the owners. Now, if you're a shareholder in a company, it doesn't matter if you hold one share or a million shares, at least when it comes to a major decision, you're incorporated in that decision. Obviously, if you've got one share, you've only got one vote. If you've got a million shares, you've got a million votes. But you have to be, as we've seen with AGL, you have to be consulted and you need to make a decision as a shareholder, whether you accept what the CEO and the board is offering or not. It's different with publicly owned assets. We've seen the privatisation of Medibank Private, the privatisation of Telstra or Telecom, what it used to be called, the privatisation of the Commonwealth Serum Laboratory, the privatisation of every airport in this country, the privatisation of ports in this country, the privatisation basically of anything that moves. And the dilemma is, 
that most of these major public institutions that have been privatised, like energy production, not only provided a benefit and security to the community, because the community had some influence over decisions through their parliamentary representatives, but more importantly, many of these publicly funded institutions were providing profits which went back to the Federal Treasury or various state government treasuries. And we've seen this privatisation disease now enter the aged care sector, the education sector, early childhood development sector, national disability insurance uh, scheme sector, and the list goes on and on. And what happens when we see privatisation? We see two things happen consistently. One, higher cost to the client. And two, worse conditions for the workers in those institutions and industries. That's the outcome of privatisation constantly. Because when you privatise something... You need to create a profit for their shareholders. When something is in public hands, it is there, not necessarily to create a profit for the federal or state government, it is there to provide a service to the community. It is there to ensure energy security. Think how easy it would have been to change to a non-carbon future if energy production was still in the hands of state and federal governments. Much easier than trying to push the uh, private sector in that direction. So think about it. So I think any important public asset needs to be incorporated into the Australian Constitution because that means, very simply, if the government of the day wants to sell the ports, it needs to have a referendum. If the government of the day wants to sell the Commonwealth Serum Laboratory, it needs to have a referendum. If the government of the day wanted to sell essential infrastructure, energy-producing infrastructure, it needs to have a referendum because the ownership will then lie in the people's hands, not in the hands of the government of the day, which has the authority constitutionally to sell anything it likes at any time it likes for any reason it likes whether it's practical ideological doesn't really matter all right let's move on now i hate to say this whether it's pink whether it's green whether it's blue whether it's red whether it's teal capitalism is capitalism anybody who thinks the way forward as far as the climate emergency is concerned is through green capitalism is sorely mistaken. Capitalism it was, is what has created the current crisis, the private investment for private profit mantra. It's what create, has created this, the current crisis. I'll give you a simple example. In 1788, when the first fleet, I think there were 12 or 13 ships, arrived at Port Jackson, the death toll in the journey was minimal. And it was minimal 
because the first fleet was publicly funded. Publicly funded, so there was adequate resources for that first fleet to arrive. Irrespective of what you think about the first fleet arriving at Sydney Harbour, the death toll in the journey was minimal. The second fleet, which arrived, I think, a year or two later, was privately funded. And the death toll was extraordinary, not terms of not just in terms of disease, but in terms of starvation, in terms of not having enough people on the ships to actually uh, make sure the ship sailed properly because they were trying to make a buck. It was privately sponsored, okay? It's the same with the climate emergency. Capitalism is capitalism is capitalism. What happens with green capitalism? Instead of concentrating on community-owned or community public decentralised energy production facilities to give people energy security, what we see is the creation of huge centralised systems which are privately owned, which means although the CO2 emissions decrease, it means that those essential energy facilities are in private hands and they need to make a buck. End of story. They need to make a buck. Now, capitalism is the engine of the climate emergency. Capitalism, private investment for private profit is based on the concept a very simple concept that irrespective of the human cost, the environmental costs, the social costs, the cultural costs, the environmental costs, as I said before, you need to make a profit. They're always secondary. Because if you don't make a profit in a capitalist society, your business fails. It's that simple. That's the underlying principle. Underlying principle. For example, give you a simple example. We've got inflation in Australia currently. Coffee prices are going up. Lots of small coffee shops around this country are going to have to put their will be putting their prices up in order to survive. They've got to make a buck in order to survive. Now, on the planet today, we have four pressing issues. One is the domination of the world economy by corporations whose major responsibility is to create profits for their major shareholders, irrespective of the human, social, environmental cost. Then we have increasing population growth. We are approaching 8 billion people on the planet. Some people say that the population will stabilise at 10 billion. The more people we have on the planet, obviously the more resources we need to use. Obviously the resources are finite. Irrespective of how, you know, how bright our scientists are, the fact is that the resources are finite. We may be able to push the envelope with te technological innovation, but the fact is resources are finite. All those wonderful little personal computers you carry around in your pocket, 
they rely on finite resources. So we have finite resources, increasing population growth, increasing CO2 emissions as a direct consequence of the private investment for private profit mantra which dominates every aspect of our existence. And the situation is worse in Australia because over the last 40 years during the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation revolution, what we have seen is most aspects of our society becoming part of the private sector. So there is no significant public sector left in Australia apart from public servants whose major responsibility is to give out contracts to private corporations to carry out functions that governments traditionally have carried out since World War II. I mean, we've gone back to a 19th century capitalism where the government is basically there to ensure that those who own the means of production, distribution, exchange, communication continue to own those uh, those fact sectors of Australian society. So it's a very, very difficult situation we find ourselves in. And if we think green capitalism or pink capitalism or blue capitalism or red capitalism or teal capitalism is going to resolve the climate emergency issue and is going to help to resolve the housing crisis, is going to help resolve the public housing, the public health crisis, the public education crisis, the crisis within the community as far as indebtedness is concerned, the the growing inequalities in our community, it is not. We need a major transformation. And that transformation comes from us, as I said before, taking the struggle up to the ALP, up to the Greens, up to the Teals, because how things develop over the next three years is totally dependent on our participation in trying to push the envelope in a more decentralised devolution of power, sharing of wealth angle. Because if we don't, we'll see the Murdoch-dominated media sections of the government guild at ABC and vested interests in this country fight back. Give the Duttons and the Proudfoots of the world the leg up they need to stop any reforms, no matter how mildly they are. So the best way to ensure that this new feeling of power that an increasing number of people in this country are beginning to experience continues to expand and continues to become part of the day-to-day conversation for a growing number of people in this country is for us to expand that struggle, for us to ensure that we have a significant public sector to ensure we grow a cooperative and, co- and collective sector to compete 
with the public sector and the private sector. That we break down the power that corporations have by forcing them to break up into smaller entities. Because today, I'll give you a simple example. There are about 20,000 general practices in Australia. 2,000 of these people are employed by one company. We now have three companies in Australia that own more than 50% of general practices. And this corporatisation has occurred in every aspect of living. Aged care, early childhood development. Wherever there is a highway to the Treasury, we see corporations dominating the marketplace and pushing out smaller players. So there's really no competition. So if there's one lesson to be learned from this election result, that if we want egalitarian change, if we want the devolution of power, if you want to ensure that the one-third of Australians who live on less than $500 a week's lives improve, if you want to ensure that those Australians who are indebted up to their necks for generations to survive, lives improve. We need to continue to push for important changes in our society, changes which have a significant impact on the private investment for private profit mantra which dominates so many aspects of our day-to-day lives. Now, we can all listen, but occasionally we need to do something, like every day we need to do something. Now, Mr Albanese is right when he said we should hit the ground running, and we should hit the ground running as far as radicalising that agenda in terms of decentralisation of power and the sharing of wealth. You've been listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. Uh, the program can be, is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. The program has been coming to you courtesy of the Community Radio Network across Australia via the studios of Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne. If you want to leave any messages, 439 395 489 Facebook pages, Joseph Toscana, Toscana for the Public. YouTube, Public Interests Before Corporate Interests. So, um, also a late message, uh, John Barraclough, who I spoke about earlier, uh, died uh, on Monday morning, so I was very pleased I was able to see him on uh, Saturday. So thank you, Laney, for that information. So we'll resolve those two issues. Ken Moody is in a nursing home. He's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and uh, John Barraclough died on Monday morning. So I'd like to extend my sympathies to John's family. He was an extraordinary activist, a great supporter of Free CR, a free spirit, a great human being. He lived a wonderful life. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org. That's freecr.org.au. Next week, who knows what we're going to talk about. 
evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist Wall this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger! CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focus on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.